There are a lot of brilliant books that inform, shape, and scrutinize the European project. More books than any of us mere mortals can read, or read as deeply as we'd like. So why not get the insight directly from the authors themselves? Grab a comfy seat, a coffee, a tea, the dog, the cat. It's time for EU Scream Book Club. Coming up, a book that gets you in the room with the people who kept Greece in the Eurozone. The Last Bluff by Victoria Dandrinu and Eleni Varvitsiati. Greece was in the first wave of countries to join the Euro, and for a while, it looked like it would be the first country to leave. Twelve years ago, an incoming Greek government revealed a huge hole in the country's public finances. The ensuing debt crisis saw Eurozone states and the IMF lend the country hundreds of billions of euros. But the tough terms on those loans meant crushing austerity. Spending cuts led to civil unrest, and there was a deep sense among Greeks that they were being punished unfairly. By early 2015, a fresh wind was blowing. Greece had elected a hard-left party, Syriza, that was vowing to reject the terms of the loans. And over the following months, the world watched in awe and often in admiration as a scrappy government in Athens tried to stare down Europe's financial and political establishment. The standoff failed spectacularly. Greece ended up with yet more loans and on even tougher terms. So who's to blame for the debacle? In their best-selling book, Victoria Dendrino, then with the Wall Street Journal Europe, and Eleni Varvitsiotti, writing for Greece's Katamirini newspaper, judge Syriza's strategy doomed from the outset. But they also dissect the disputes among Greece's lenders that inflicted undue suffering on ordinary citizens. The pandemic interfered with plans for a book tour, and Victoria is now in New York, but Eleni's still close by, reporting for the Financial Times from Athens. That's where we spoke about the characters the book brings to life and its most memorable scenes, including its tragicomic denouement. Eleni, your book was the number one nonfiction bestseller in Greece a couple of summers ago. Congratulations. Thank you. We, we did not expect it at all, actually. Our aim was to just write the story and write it in the most objective way one could do it. And we thought there wasn't any other person with more interest to do that because we were both journalists in Brussels and both Greek, so we could have both sides of the story. Finding all the key characters in so many places, and from Washington to Brussels to Athens to London to Paris, Berlin, etc., putting all pieces of the puzzle together and, you know, given the distance that time gives you, people have a different perspective of how things occurred. So just to set the scene a little bit, by January 2015, after some five years, and this is where, in many ways, the book starts, after some five years of EU-mandated austerity, Greece elects this hard-left party, Syriza, for the first time ever. And at the start of the book, you draw a picture of the new prime minister, Alexis Tsipras, early 40s, radical firebrand, and now he's ensconced at Maximos Mansion, the prime ministerial residence in Athens. Yeah, 
I mean, it was quite a scene if you think that it was the first radical left Greek prime minister. He's the youngest prime minister we had. One of the first meetings that he has as prime minister is Jeroen Dijsselbloem. He is the Dutch finance minister and the head of the Eurogroup of finance ministers whose countries are lending most of the bailout money to Greece. So Dijsselbloem is pretty important. When Dijsselbloem walks into his office, the first time he meets him, he finds a pretty emotional Tsipras who has his eyes tearing up, actually, on the verge of tears. And Tsipras is seemingly distracted from any concrete request by Dijsselbloem. I mean, Dijsselbloem tells him, ask for an extension of the program. The Greek bailout program was expiring in a month. and We can negotiate a new program. Instead, Tsipras is totally focused on humanitarian concerns, the ravages of the austerity program. He actually told uh, Dijsselbloem that I want to be the first prime minister who keeps his promises. This seemed to show how basically unprepared he was for dealing with the intricacies of the bailouts or that he was ready to push away any real commitment to I the I think bailout. that's what it shows. That it was clear from the beginning that Tsipras was ready to push away any real commitment from the bailout process. And he used his charm, which was a very big weapon that he had. He was a very likable person. I think it was clear from, from the first meeting that he was using delaying tactics and thinking he could buy time because clearly he had no plan at that moment. He was elected and he had no plan of how he would deal with his creditors. You also, early in the book, give some intimate color about Dijsselbloem himself. This Dutchman, he lives an entire world away, it seems, on a farm east of The Hague in the Netherlands, where he spends his free time harvesting produce. Yeah, I mean, we, we wanted to pay attention to details, personality details, to give some context about who these people were. So Dijsselbloem, actually an agricultural economist by training, he spent his free time raising chickens and pigs. And on weekends, he uh, could be seen at the farm collective. He sh shared with his neighbors. He was harvesting produce. He was dressed up in boots. He had a shovel in hand. And his driver would always have shoe polish in the car in case Dijsselbloem needed to clean his shoes from mud before heading to official meetings. So that detail, I mean, I think shows part of his character. Absolutely. And in many ways, your book, and in many ways, the whole crisis, to some degree, is about this contrast between you could say these meticulous, some would say buttoned up Northern Europeans and their Greek counterparts from this rather more freewheeling and scruffy radical left party led by Alexis Tsipras. But you and Victoria write about how the Tsipras government consistently didn't do itself any favors as credible interlocutors, despite having a lot of sympathy, including a lot of sympathy from the Americans for their campaign to ease the terms of the loans to Greece. Key members of the Tsipras government show up really late to meetings, they talk in generalities, they don't take notes, and even when they do show up with some speaking points, they don't always know where they are. Yeah, actually there's a famous meeting which took place. It was the first time that the Tsipras and his closest advisors would meet Angela Merkel in Berlin in her, in her office in the chancellery. You can see on one side are the Germans who are very organized with all their, all their files in front of them and they're ready to negotiate. And on the other hand, you have Tsipras and his advisors who are looking for this folder and they are speaking in Greek, asking, oh, have you seen the orange folder? No, 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 you had the folder. No, no, actually you had the, the folder. And this takes place in front of the cameras. 
It's not the ideal first meeting with Angela Merkel. No, which as we know, she's very meticulous and very, very well prepared. I mean, this is just an anecdote, but the stark difference between the two teams was very clear at that moment. The CIPRAS government was up against member states of the Eurozone, like Germany, and institutions like the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund. By early 2015, where Eleni's book picks up the thread, the Eurozone and the IMF had jointly lent Greece 240 billion euros. Yet Greece was using much of that money to pay interest on its debt and to keep banks capitalized. That merry-go-round of cash seemed absurd to many Greeks. It's one of the reasons they voted the hard-left Syriza party into power in the first place and, a few months later, voted against more loans in a SNAP referendum. To make matters worse, the lenders themselves were often at loggerheads. The IMF, with its global membership, put an emphasis on debt relief and speedy reform. Eurozone officials balked at debt relief, and they worried that too much reform, too fast, would damage the economy even more. What's also really sobering about your book is how you show that the Greek Syriza side aren't the only problem. Far from it. A key theme that you and Victoria follow and unpack, I think in extraordinary detail, is the souring relations among the two key groups of lenders to Greece and representatives of those lenders. On the one hand, the European Commission and the Eurozone countries. On the other hand, the International Monetary Fund, which always has a very, very, very close eye on whether recipients of its loans can pay them back. You write how the compromises that emerged from these clashes between these two groups, the essentially the EU group and the IMF group, would mostly end up with Greece, quotes, getting the short end of the stick. Yeah, exactly. Then there's no way you can simply put all of the blame on Greece and Syriza for everything that was going wrong. The lenders, and especially the IMF, did not cover themselves in glory. And it was as if you had a patient with cancer, and that was Greece, and you had two doctors. One was the IMF saying that we should do a very hard, rough, but short chemotherapy that the patient most probably will survive. It will go through hell for a couple of months, but then will recover. And the other doctors, the member states, said, no, actually, we should do a very smooth chemo, but it will take much longer. In the end, James, what happens is that we had a very hard treatment for a very long time. You make the case that nobody from the IMF is more responsible for that unfortunate souring of relations among the creditors than the head of the IMF's Greek team, and later on the IMF's head of Europe, this really gruff and adamant Dane called Paul Thompson. Exactly. And we came to the conclusion that Greece really got personal for Paul Thompson. And he was uncompromising and ferocious with the European Commission, especially because Thompson fundamentally did not believe that Greece should be in the Eurozone in the first place and that Greece was more or less a failed state. I mean, he had a, a first-hand experience from the beginning of the program, and I think he got obsessed with certain things that were wrong in Greece, and he could not let it go. He could not see the larger picture of the Greek economy. Then at the height of the crisis, precisely the moment Cyprus called a referendum on Greece, on whether to accept the ongoing financial terms, the Europeans wanted a yes, but it was like Thompson was attacking Europe directly. 
This move by Thompson came at precisely the moment that Tsipras had called the referendum on Greece on whether to accept the ongoing financial terms being offered by the Europeans. And of course, the Europeans wanted a yes vote. So he released like three days, I think, before the, the referendum, a technical document called Debt Sustainability Analysis that actually said that the Greek debt is not sustainable, exactly what Tsipras and Syriza were saying, and it just showed how much the Greeks were being shortchanged by its uh, creditors. And that, I think, is bizarre. I mean, the Europeans were really wrong-footed by Thompson's move, and they tried to stop the publication of this analysis since it really helped the no-vote side. He's never actually explained this incident, and so all we can do is actually speculate. Thompson has retired, but he's actually quite recently maintained that the Eurozone is kind of a flawed entity. April 2021, he was actually saying that Greece will be a sitting duck, that will simply wait for the next crisis, that after the pandemic, Greece will need sooner or later another debt restructuring, and not only Greece, but also France or Italy will have to do so. There are some truly arresting splashes of color in the book, and one that's especially vivid concerns Thomas Wieser. How do we describe his role? Thomas Wieser was an Austrian EU official who was the head of the Euro Working Group. They do all the technical work before the Eurogroups of all the finance ministers. So he had a very key, key role because he was the man who knew all positions. He knew where the red line was for each side. And as for color, I think what you're referring to is the way we learn how much he actually loves doing the ironing, which is a source of joy to his artist wife. The ironing thing is also what we feel was a pretty good metaphor since smoothing things out was his specialty. And one of the key ironing jobs that he was partly in charge of was developing this plan B, the Grexit plan. That plan being how to smooth over as much as possible the fallout for Europe and for Greece if the country did actually end up leaving the Eurozone. Now, this was pretty secret stuff during the entire time you and I were actively reporting on the Greek debt crisis. Top, top, top secret, James. I mean, nobody knew that they were working on something like that. And the creditors and Thomas Wieser went to huge lengths to keep it secret. They kept it in a special uh, room. There were very, very few copies around. And one of their tactics was even to name it something deflective. I mean, the, the plan was actually called Croatia's Accession in the European Union. And the first plan in 2012, which was uh, revealed by Peter Spiegel in the Financial Times. And then Croatia actually joined the EU, so it became Albanian's Contingency Analysis and Plan. And we got it in our hands, and that was a very exciting moment in our reporting, actually. So this Plan B, or Grexit Plan, by 2015 involves some pretty inventive repurposing of Euro banknotes as part of the steps to usher in a return of Greece to its own new physical currency, which might take at least eight months following a Grexit? Yes, indeed. I mean, you cannot print a new currency from one day to the other. The thinking here was to punch holes in existing euro notes till they phase out, until you have the new drachma. But then there was this worry that they might gum up the ATMs. And then there was a plan to stamp the notes with an additional overlay, but also there were concerns that this would confuse the ATMs. So eventually the plan involved printing stopgap emergency drachma notes at a facility in northern Athens where you still you, you print euro notes at this moment until a new printing facility for the new drachma was up and running. But just in case, the as you report, the European Central Bank 
still has in mind to send a team to Athens to destroy printing plates and films held by the Bank of Greece to produce the Euronotes. So there's still this real fear of counterfeiting after Grexit. I think the fear was that things would be so out of control that the Greek government at that point could be desperate and will start printing Euronotes and then you will have Euro notes printed out of Greece that wouldn't be the original ones. I mean, that could create a chaos. So the first thing that they would do, it was ECB officials going and taking this plate so Greeks could not be able to print Euro notes. And the point that I want to get to is that keeping it secret, this plan B, this Brexit plan, keeping it secret actually helped Saritza claim that we have the leverage here. Nobody knew that they were working on something like that during 2015. And that perversely made it possible for Syriza to claim that there was no plan B and that Europe and the Eurozone somehow would blink first. The plan actually says that direct contagion risk should be manageable. In any case, if Greece exited the euro, if they started their new notes, the end result was that Greece would need to anyway ask for another bailout. There's a particular character from the Syriza-led Greek government we need to bring in here, Yanis Varoufakis. Varoufakis is Cyprus's finance minister, and he's a kind of self-styled rock star economist. He's fond of wearing black leather jackets. He's also driving his fellow finance ministers absolutely crazy with his lengthy interventions during ministerial meetings on austerity economics and on the ways in which losses by private banks are being transferred to Greece's and Europe's taxpayers. Now, those are extremely valid perspectives, but it's the manner in which Varoufakis would go on and on, essentially holding court which, rightly or wrongly, that was widely seen as pretty obnoxious. What did you and Victoria conclude that Varoufakis was really up to here with these tactics? Yeah, Victoria and I take the view that this filibustering by Varoufakis was part of a conscious strategy. It's part of what we call the last bluff, which lent itself to the title of the book. This bluff, as exemplified by Varoufakis, was indeed to buy time and offer as few concessions to Greece's creditors as possible to pull everything to the extreme and make Europe essentially blink first. I mean, Varoufakis uh, had this perception that uh, if Greece goes down, Europe will go down. So at the end, the Europeans are going to give exactly what I want them to give. Basically, Varoufakis, he seems to have convinced his boss, the Prime Minister Tsipras, that Greece really does have some leverage with Europe since it has the means to unleash chaos in the Eurozone. But in fact, and this is absolutely central to your book, that's probably a deeply faulty view. And one reason for that is that by 2015, the Eurozone itself is a lot more secure than at the start of the crisis and collectively introduced a lot of reforms to prevent the kind of financial chaos or contagion that would result from a Grexit spreading to the likes of Italy and others. Anyway, in the book, you're really showing how Varoufakis had little more up his sleeve than this rather misconceived, as you see it, bluffing strategy. And to that point, there's one scene where you show how Varoufakis has almost no instructions, no advice, no plan for his own deeply worried finance ministry officials when they ask him for their marching orders. Yes, that's a very good example, I think. Uh, Varoufakis is speaking to his staff on the third floor of the Finance Ministry General Accounting Office. It's the first time that he actually meets them, although they, I think it's two months after he, he took office. And he's asked by a senior official there, 
We are your army in this glorious endeavor. So we just want to know what is your campaign? What should we be doing? She was like, tell us what the target is. Is it to take back Constantinople? Is it to take back Mistras, which was the last uh, capital of the Byzantine Empire? I mean, it's, a, it's more of an expression. And Varoufakis says, in effect, uh, don't worry about such detail. I mean, don't worry about the negotiations, more or less. We'll just bluff them. And in another sign of naivete, or worse, Varoufakis' technical team drew up a medium-term plan that is completely out of whack because it's 10 years rather than the normal four years. I mean, how can you predict how your economy is going to be in the next decade when, you know, economists have trouble to predict in the next year or so? So finance ministry officials were very puzzled, to say the least, about the team that Varoufakis had brought in. And it's also revealing that Varoufakis threatened Dysabloom to do something that's actually prohibited by European Central Bank rules. Yeah, and I mean, it starts from the very beginning, the first meeting that Varoufakis has with Dysabloom, the head of the Eurogroup and the new finance minister. And the exchange that they have is actually Varoufakis, in a way, blackmails him and says that the part of the Greek debt, which is under Greek law, a small part, actually, it was about 20 billion euros, uh, he could unilaterally extend it, so I'm not going to pay them now, so he could pay his imminent debt. And then he implied that, okay, take me to Greek courts, it will take you forever to figure out a decision. So I, in a sense, I would create chaos and you have to deal with it. But we'll have cash. Why didn't Varoufakis, Tsipras and the Greek government pull that particular trigger on those bonds held by the European Central Bank, because it seems to be true that Germany was very worried about how that could damage the whole European Central Bank project to safeguard the euro, and that might shake confidence in the currency. Because he, he, would, he couldn't do it. It would be an exit from the euro. That's the thing. They defaulted to the IMF. Yeah, the IMF, though, doesn't trigger clauses of total default. I mean, if they would default on the ECB bonds, then that would trigger a total default. They were not ready to do that. In his own highly readable memoir, Varoufakis says he was fully ready to go to war with the European Central Bank and to leave the Eurozone. In other words, this was no bluff. Varoufakis had devised his own plan B, a plan that he says could have allowed Greece to crash out of the single currency and keep control of monetary policy. But none of this came to pass. According to Varoufakis, Tsipras, the prime minister, had originally been game to put the plan into action. But Tsipras bottled out, overcome by fear of his possible execution in a right-wing coup d'etat. Tsipras gave The Guardian a rather more mundane explanation. Varoufakis's plan B when Tsipras says he actually got around to reading it, was so vague that it wasn't worth the trouble of even talking about. By the end of the book, there's quite literally chaos, as we don't know whether Greece is going to be able to cover any of its interest payments anymore after it's already defaulted to the IMF, let alone stay in the Eurozone, or even in the European Union for that matter. One way you illustrate this acute situation is what was going on in the finance ministry itself, which is tracking the amount of money left and what it can afford to pay for. At that moment, we actually have the banks closed, and it's like for a week 
can imagine the chaos that that could create in an economy. And so you have this Tavrula Miyako, this amazing character who is in the finance ministry. The banks are closed and she has all these phone calls that people from around the globe are calling her and like, I'm stuck in this place, I need to go back, you have to send me money or you have to let me access my account. And she has this story which is heartbreaking of a father whose uh, uh, son died in a foreign country and he needs to repatriate his body back to Greece and he, he doesn't have the funds to send money to the country where the, the, his son is. So she was called all the time to make these decisions. So this senior finance ministry official is making these selective decisions to open up... Accounts, yeah. Open up accounts. When we have capital controls and the banks are closed, yeah. A final splash of color in the book is really tragicomic. The French president at the time, François Hollande, is trying to get Alexis Tsipras, the prime minister, to rejoin negotiations at what is arguably the biggest cliffhanger summit in EU history, where Grexit is looking like a real possibility. And Monsieur le Président is kept waiting at the door of the Greek delegation offices while the Greek ambassador to the EU desperately tries to tidy up and is shooing other Greek officials out onto the balcony. Yeah, I think that's a very funny, but also, you are right, tragic uh, incident. It's very late. It's actually early in the morning, like 3, 4 a.m. The, the meeting has broken up uh, because there's no progress. So Tsipras is in his office, the Greek office, inside the council building, consulting with his advisors. Inside the council building in Brussels. Exactly. This is the EU summit building, exactly. effectively. And inside the office, I mean, the Greek team is actually in disarray. They are smoking and drinking heavily. And when Hollande arrives, I mean, they want to show that this is not taking place. So the ambassador at that moment, uh, Alexandra Papadopoulou, uh, who is asleep on a couch outside where the meeting is taking place of uh, Tsipras with his um, advisors, she hears the words, Hollande is coming, Hollande is coming. And she leaps up and, and has to stall the French president at the door while an aide... Uh, Actually, I can read you what happened then. So the aide shouted, uh, Hollande is coming, Hollande is coming. Stall him while I clean up the room. So she urged the ambassador and then ran to the back area where Tsipras and his team were sitting. Within minutes, she got them on their feet and almost like a teacher instructing school children, she started pushing them out on the office balcony and closing the curtains so, so they couldn't be seen. Stay there, she told them. With a group outside on the balcony, she frantically cleaned the room, opening the windows to air it from the cigarette smoke and tossing the whiskey bottles behind the sofa so Lan wouldn't see them. So, I mean, it's a very funny scene, but also very tragic if you think that this is the Greek team negotiating for the future of a, of a country of 11 million people. Tsipras, of course, does return to the negotiations that night of Sunday, Monday, July 12th and 13th. 2015, and ultimately a deal is struck that is in effect a giant U-turn for the Syriza leader. He accepts the terms of a new bailout plus three more years of painful reforms in exchange for another giant sum of 86 billion euros. A good deal of trust had been destroyed between Greece and its creditors, and the terms of this bailout, the third for Greece since 2010, were more severe and prescriptive and some would say punitive than ever. The whole final few months where Tsipras and Varoufakis, as you and Victoria describe it, are trying to bluff Europe, is estimated to have cost an extra 100 to 200 billion euros. 
there's this author of a recently published history of Greece, Roderick Beaton. He writes that this vast sum was probably the price that needed to be paid for all parties in Greece, from the far left through the hard right, finally to accept the need for the loan programs and adjustments that they involved. My question to you, Eleni, did the Greeks really have no leverage at all during these final days? I mean, after all, nobody, and certainly not Angela Merkel, wanted to be the person who would go down in history as breaking up the Eurozone. In other words, losing Greece and creating the precedent that Euro membership is reversible. I think the whole negotiating tactic was wrong from the beginning because Tsipras and his government was not ready to take Greece out of the Eurozone. So the bluff was not real because they didn't have that intention to begin with. So going into a negotiation and bluffing that if you don't meet my demands, I will take my country outside of the Eurozone was not a true bluff. We saw it with the referendum. He had the power. He had more than 60% of the Greek population saying no to the program that was offered at that moment. And he could have taken things to the extreme. And he actually did an extreme U-turn. The Kolotumba. Kolotumba, exactly. <laughs> it's actually an official name. Now it's, it's known in Brussels, right? The, the name for a somersault in Greek. That's it for this episode of EU Scream Book Club. EU Scream's nonprofit journalism is supported by listener donations, partnerships, and by advertising. And we're grateful to the Laura Kinsella Foundation for an annual grant. For more details and for more episodes of EU Scream, visit euscream.com or euobserver.com forward slash eu hyphen scream. I'm James Cantor. Thanks for listening.